0: Hello, I'm Jacob Kruger, and this is the Write Your Screenplay podcast. This week, we're going to be talking about Barbenheimer. That's right, Barbie and Oppenheimer in the same podcast. And not just because you probably saw the two movies back to back. We're going to be talking about Barbie and Oppenheimer together because these are two groundbreaking political movies. These are two groundbreaking structural movies. These are two groundbreaking movies in their form and in their experimentation. And both of these groundbreaking movies were released in the middle of the summer when we're used to seeing nothing but popcorn action movies. We're going to be looking at Barbie and Oppenheimer to understand how to write a political film Uh, or, or to say it in a more profound way, how to write a film that is really about something. So often when we are taught structure, we're taught about how to move a character from A to Z, right? How to test a character, how to change a character, how to make sure your character wants something and makes choices. And all these things are really important. But they only matter within the context of what you are actually saying. We don't become screenwriters just because we like puppeting characters around. We become screenwriters because there's something we want to say. And the truth is, all of our writing, whether we like it or not, is political. We are the myth makers for our generation and for the next generation, right? We are the people who write the stories that tell people what does it mean to be a woman, what does it mean to be a man, what does it mean to be a person, what does it mean to be a hero, what does it mean to be good, or what does it mean to be bad, or what does it mean to be morally complicated? How should we act in the world? How should we try not to act in the world? This tradition of myth-making goes back thousands of years, right? All the way back to Greek mythology and even beyond, right? That's just our earliest written history, right? For as long as there have been stories, human beings have looked to stories for meaning. And so it's our job as screenwriters to make sure we darn well know what meaning we are actually communicating. Because if we don't know what meaning we're communicating, our films and our shows are nevertheless going to have very powerful effects. Our film has the effect, our show has the effect, whether we like it or not. Uh, If you listen to my podcast uh, about therapeutic and anti-therapeutic films, our movies, when they work, our shows, when they work, move people to a place of catharsis, of change. We're not just changing our characters, we are changing our audience. And that means every single thing about how you build your film, or how you build your TV series, or how you build your play, or how you build your novel, or how you build your poem, or your song lyrics, or whatever kind of writing you're doing, every single element of how a story is built grows out of the theme. It grows out of what are you building. And understanding what you're building is also going to serve you when your film is actually in production or your film is in pre-production or your film is in development or even when your film is in the editing room. It's going to help you know which notes to accept because they're going to make your film stronger and which notes to reject. It, It helps you know what rules to break and which rules to follow. It helps you know which voices in the room are your voices and which voices in the room are merely distractions. It allows you to know which brainstorms are brainstorms that fulfill the script, that add to what you're trying to build, and which brainstorms are simply rabbit holes that you're going to disappear down. There's a metaphor I love to use in my write-your-screenplay classes. If you are building a cathedral and you budget a significant amount of money for a stained-glass window, well, that makes a lot of sense. Right. It makes sense to spend money on a stained glass window in a cathedral. But if you're building a bomb shelter and you spend even a single penny on a stained glass window, no matter how beautiful, even if you got a stained glass window for free, if you're building a bomb shelter, it is a mistake because that stained glass window is going to shatter and it's going to destroy you this is so important to understand, right? This is the power of theme. If you don't know what you're building, you never know what's gonna work or what's not gonna work. You never know where to spend your energy and where not to spend your energy. And one of the challenges in screenwriting is that sometimes you don't fully know your theme when you first start to write. So that every process becomes a process of revision adaptation, right? That as we write, we discover more and more what we actually want to say. We discover where the movie or the show lives. We discover what the movie or the show is really about. Sometimes we think we're building a cathedral and it turns out we are building a bomb shelter. And that's actually when we have to kill our darlings, right? We have no choice but kill our darlings. When we realize I just put the most beautiful stained glass window into a bomb shelter. That's when we realize, oh, I need to revise. Now, when we get to Barbie and Oppenheimer, both of these movies are also adaptations. And adaptations and revisions are actually deeply connected. In in fact, they're the same thing. What we're doing when we revise a screenplay or when we adapt a screenplay is we are taking something that is not yet a screenplay and we are translating it into a form that will one day be a screenplay. I want to say that again. We are taking something that is not yet a screenplay and transforming it into a form that will one day be a screenplay. So whether you are sitting down with a doll, an iconic doll and a corporate brand strategy that you have to somehow adapt into a revolutionary feminist film, or whether you are starting with a true life story or a book. Um, And interestingly, Christopher Nolan actually had begun the idea of an Oppenheimer project before he was introduced to the book American Prometheus that he would eventually adapt But whether you're starting with a book, a doll, a true story, a dream, a short story, a novel, a song, a play, a life experience, a character, a line of dialogue, an image you can't get out of your head, a question, a thematic concept, it doesn't matter where you're starting. It doesn't matter if you're starting with a rough draft or draft number 72. You are always doing the same process of adaptation as you revise your script, right? Adaptation and revision are the same thing. What you're doing, if your 72nd draft or your rough draft was a screenplay, meaning if it did what you wanted it to do and said what you wanted it to say in a way that people could understand and talk about, you would be done. You wouldn't be revising. And what that means is whether it's your first draft or your thousandth draft, if you're revising it, it's because it's not yet a screenplay. Just like a Barbie doll is not yet a screenplay. Just like a book is not yet a screenplay. And there are different ways to adapt. If you are adapting a doll, you have tremendous freedom, but you also have a corporate strategy you have to deal with, right? This is an iconic doll. Mattel is not going to let you mess up their doll. At the end of the day, Mattel has to sell Barbies or making the Barbie movie does not make sense. So how do you tell a radical story (laughs) that is quite frankly targeted for people who both love Barbie and hate Barbie? How do you do that like Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach do in this script? How do you do that? Well, in Barbie, you have to start with the givens of Barbie. The givens of Barbie are, hey, here are the many, many Barbies that have been made. Here is the brand identity of Barbie and how it's evolved. Here are some of the terrible mistakes that people have made around Barbie. Here are some of the terrible models that have been released. Here is the complicated relationship we have with corporations and brands. Here is the question of what it means to be a woman that is inextricably tied to what Barbie is. These are the elements that we're starting our adaptation with. Here are the things I can mess with. Here are the things that Mattel is not going to let me get away with right? These are the foundational elements. They're not yet a screenplay. Similarly, if you are working on Oppenheimer and you realize you're going to adapt this book, a lot of true stories just quite frankly are not true. A lot of true story adaptations take like the germ of truth. Something kind of like this happened a little bit. Um, And you have to make the decision as a screenwriter if you're adapting a true story or if you're adapting a nonfiction book, you have to make the decision, am I going to tell the truth, the literal truth? Am I going to tell the emotional truth? Am I not going to tell the truth at all? Am I just going to spin it out into my own story? Right? And you have to make a decision when you're adapting that's going to rest with your morals, right? That at the end of the day, you're going to be able to look at yourself in the mirror and say, hey, my writing has meaning. Hey, I did something beautiful. I didn't just do something exploitative. Hey, no matter whether I know it's true or not, a whole generation is going to believe that whatever I wrote is true. This is going to become, if the movie gets made, the true story. So you got to be able to live with that. So, For example, we'll talk much more about this later, and I'm not going to spoil anything yet, although there will be some spoilers coming. I'll I'll warn you first. There are a couple of different frames in Oppenheimer. There's the obvious frame of the hearing that Strauss has put together of Oppenheimer in the wake of the bomb. But there's another little frame that also involves Strauss, which is about a meeting between Oppenheimer and Einstein. And this frame is actually where we're building to. We're going to come back around to it a couple of times. And the movie actually culminates when we find out what was said in this little frame, right? Oppenheimer, in other words, is moving non-linearly across time coming back around, around, around across time as opposed to moving from A to B and B to C and C to D, right? It's it's built on a more emotional level as we explore Oppenheimer's story. And it's all built around that scene with Einstein. Everything culminates in that scene with Einstein. That is what the movie is about. Uh, but that actually is not how it happened, right? Um, Christopher Nolan, yes, there was a relationship between Oppenheimer and Einstein, but, but Einstein wasn't really the confidant in that situation, right? That scene got rewritten and adapted because Christopher Nolan felt that it would be more impactful if those words were said to a scientist whose name a mainstream audience recognized uh, that it would have more impact. So that's an example where in a movie that is shockingly truthful right in a complicated way right part of the reason that oppenheimer is 3 hours long is because of the faith that christopher nolan is showing to what actually happened uh there are also choices to leave out some things right it's um there's been a lot of protest uh, around the fact that many 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 people actually inhabited this place that's kind of called uninhabited in The movie and those people got cancer and those people got sick and those people suffered for generations and their story really isn't told in Oppenheimer, right? So there are truths that are left out. There are truths that are adjusted to have the most emotional impact. There's a choice to move out of order, which is not what the book does, but there's a choice to move out of order Because Christopher Nolan wants to actually keep the truth, but he still wants to build his crescendo. And the only way that he can do that without changing the facts is by moving events out of order so that the emotional crescendo of the piece, the emotional climax of the piece can resonate for the audience. So he is playing games with time in order to stay truer to history, right? These are the choices that we make. As we adapt, you can, you can compare this to a movie like the social network. In fact, you can check out my podcast on the social network that's built around the premise, the ironic hook that Mark Zuckerberg, the creator of Facebook has no friends, right? And it's built around this love relationship. Well, Some of the elements of that story are true, but the central premise, actually the truth is Mark Zuckerberg had a girlfriend who he later married through this entire period, right? That whole relationship around which the story is built is actually false, right? Even though some of the emotional truth of that movie may be very, very true. So here's what's interesting, right? This is our fascinating journey as screenwriters. We are always Making choices about, first off, how close to the literal truth do we want to be? Or how close to the emotional truth do we want to be? How do we ethically look ourselves in the mirror when adapting a true story? And we're also looking at what aspect of this story do we actually want to tell? Because we can't tell the whole movie, right? We can't tell the whole story. Because a movie, Christopher Nolan gets three hours. You get about an hour and a half. But even Christopher Nolan only gets three hours, right? This is not a limited series. This is not Chernobyl. He has a limited canvas in which he's got to get all those different colors of paint. Similarly, Barbie. Barbie's got an hour and 54 minutes. You get an hour and a half. They got an hour and 54 minutes. That's a small canvas in which to tell a big story. Right, so we're we're always making a choice. If we're adapting a five hundred page novel or an eighty year life, you you can't tell all eighty years or all five hundred pages. You can't even tell the whole life of a doll, right? That's been around for generations, right? You have to look at okay, what is what is my take? What is the piece of this story that's going to represent the whole? And one of the ways that you can make that choice, but it's an ever moving target is through the use of theme. Adaptation always begins with theme. It begins with looking at what you're adapting and saying, what do I want to say about this? What matters about this? Not to them, to me. What resonates about this? What am I really trying to say? It always begins with theme because if you don't know what you're building – You can't make any choices in relation to it. Everything becomes equally important. You don't know what's going to work or what's not going to work. And then you start trying to cram and also, and also, and also, and also, and also, and you end up diffusing your revision as opposed to focusing it. And this is true even if you are working on a totally fictional project, right? you literally just started typing one day and some beautiful dialogue and some messed up dialogue and some beautiful images and some messed up images and some cool characters and some flat characters started to come out, right? You are still in a process of adaptation. And what that means is looking at the project, looking at what has already been written, asking yourself what's beautiful, what works, what does What resonates? What do I connect to? And then starting to ask yourself, okay, inside of this, what do I want to say? And that might be a moving target, right? What you think you're saying in draft one might be very different than what you're saying in draft 84. But what am I currently trying to say? What are the characters trying to say? What do I think this means? If I just look at what's already beautiful, what does it mean? Or what what meaning does it suggest? What resonates with me? And then you're going to connect that to the opposite side of theme, right? Which is hook. This is something I get into much more in depth in my master classes, right? Because hook and theme and that connection is complicated. You know, in my foundation classes, we want to just start by like, let's just connect to a character and our instincts, right? Let's just connect to our voice. Let's get something on the page that we can react to. But as we get more advanced, no, we start to juggle new balls, like theme and like hook. Hook is, well, what's it about? How are people going to talk about it? How are we going to focus it? What's the simple simple structural idea around which the movie is built or the show is built? And theme is the other side of that same coin, right? What's the emotional truth? What is the thing I'm trying to say or wrestle with or make sense of in this piece? What's it actually about? What does it do emotionally or politically? What does the catharsis do? mean what's interesting about both Oppenheimer and Barbie is they are both built around characters who don't totally know themselves Barbie is built around a character who has lived in what she believes is a utopia for her entire life but has never experienced what it really means to be a woman. She's literally an idea. And and you see, can see this is Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach adapting the doll, right? Adapting the doll as both values that it has had for young girls throughout its history, right? On the one hand, it has been a symbol of what it means to be a woman and an evolving symbol over time, right? About what it means to be a woman, both in the empowerment sense and also in the uh, impossible beauty sense, right? The proportions of the Barbie doll make it impossible for her to stand. Her feet literally never go straight. And she is sold as a convention with a Ken partner. So an evolving target of what does it mean to be a woman, both in a super empowering way and also a super problematic way. Like, this is the history of the doll, and this is what Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach are adapting. This is the truth that they are starting with. And the idea of a doll who exists as an idea, who is not even aware that she is just an idea, who slowly starts to—and there are going to be some spoilers coming now—who slowly starts to experience human emotion, who slowly starts to experience human experiences, who slowly starts being something more than just plastic, more than just a symbol, more than just an idea. This begins when Barbie's perfect dance party utopia is interrupted by a fear of death. Sudden thoughts of death which she, like so many women in our society have been trained to do, tries to push down in order to hold on to her perfect utopia. Then other things start to happen to her. Her feet go flat. She starts to develop cellulite. She is experiencing exactly the duality that every little girl who's ever dreamed of being Barbie experiences when they start to realize that they are not fully Barbie and they are not fully perfect. And if you want to go even bigger, right, she's starting to experience the problem of being a woman in even in a utopia society, right, of trying to live up to an impossible ideal and the pressure of being human. And over the course of the movie, she's going to end up going to the real world and... She's going to realize that she hasn't even done the job that she's been told she is responsible for, right? She, as the ideal woman, is responsible for ending, well, not even, she doesn't even know it exists, right? She, as a woman, is responsible for creating a perfect world for all people on the outside world, right? A world where all women are fully empowered. She believes she's done that, but then she gets in the real world and she realizes that even her vision for what her job is, her responsibility is, she has failed. There's an extraordinarily powerful scene where Margot Robbie cries for the first time. Where Barbie actually cries, right? This is what we're watching in Barbie. And because Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach are such brilliant screenwriters and because they understand that political movies work best when you meet an audience where they are, they know, yes, the, the already liberated, right, already feminist thinking audience, right, they are going to be delighted to watch Barbie's Journey. But on a blockbuster feature like this, the audience is bigger, The audience is not just feminists. The audience is not just people who think like you. When you're writing a political movie, if you're only preaching to the choir, you're going to raise some excitement, but you're not going to change the world. And I'm not saying that Barbie is going to change the world. Changing the world is really, really hard, but we can make a little bit of an effect, right? We can make an effect in people's experience of what truth is. And so one of the really brilliant moves of Barbie is to meet the audience where they are. And the way they do that is by telling a big portion of the story, not through Barbie, but through Ken, By creating a reversed world, right? Where women are in power and living their perfect women's utopia. And where it's Ken who is possessed of all the insecurity and has been taught, like so many women, that he exists only to attract the female gaze. That he exists only in the eyes of Barbie. By putting the problem that so many women face in our society and have historically faced in our society, by putting that problem into Ken, what these brilliant writers do is they meet the audience where they are. They meet the audience where they are and they help the audience Even if you're not a feminist, even if you're relatively conservative, even if you're one of those people who believe like, hey, we fixed all that. Men and women are equal. It puts you in a situation where you got to go, oh, this feels uncomfortable. I wonder if that's what women feel like, right? Even if you've literally never had this thought before, you cannot watch Ken's journey and go, oh. I wonder if that's what women feel like. And this is such an important concept. Meet your audience where they are. Give them a surrogate. If you weren't one step ahead, even if you didn't start one step ahead or 10 steps ahead, in the process of writing the movie, you're going to be 50, 100 steps ahead of your audience or at least most of your audience. You're going to know the subject matter. You're going to know the political matter. You're going to know the theme better than most of your audience. And if you show up and go, I know better than you, right? Your audience is going to go, huh? But if you show up and go, hey, here's where you are. Here's someone you can see yourself in. Here's why this is problematic. You're giving people the ability, rather than being preached to, to actually come to a realization about themselves, right? To actually find their own realization, to actually join up with you, come in under your tent. And I'm not saying everybody is going to do that, but it makes your film much more politically viable. If what you want to do is actually affect change, you got to reach some people who don't think like you. And you got to do that by going, come on in, the water's fine. And this connects to the structure of Barbie, right? Barbie is a wild, ridiculous joyride in primary colors. Why? Because that is what the doll feels like. But also because if you make Barbie serious, as opposed to goofy, the moment Barbie gets serious, you have lost a huge part of your audience suddenly they're back in school, right? This movie needs to feel like a joyride, even though it's dealing with serious political stuff. And because it's a joyride, they get to break a million rules. We get musical numbers. We get magical realism. We get expressionistic sequences. We get a portal to the, the kitchen where the creator of Barbie lives. We get ridiculous magic. We get rules that don't totally need to make sense. We get all of that stuff as the container, as the goofy, fun, primary color container for a serious message. This is the process of adaptation. Oppenheimer goes exactly the opposite way, right? Oppenheimer is freaking serious, and you better know it from the very beginning. Oppenheimer is not designed to make you laugh. It is not designed to make you escape. It is not designed to take you on a joyride. Like Barbie and Ken, who both don't really know who they are, Oppenheimer doesn't really know who he is either. He's a complicated, complicated character. And the movie is permeated by the wrong fear, right? It, it is built around It is built around a quote from the Bhagavad Gita that uh, Oppenheimer was actually quite fond of, which was, now I have become death, the destroyer of worlds. But Oppenheimer is also a character who doesn't totally know who he is. And his problem is that he's afraid that he's going to destroy the world by igniting the atmosphere. He's afraid that he's going to destroy the world by not creating the bomb fast enough. He doesn't realize that he's actually going to potentially destroy the world by setting off a chain reaction that cannot be stopped of nuclear proliferation. He is afraid of the wrong thing. But he's also not able throughout the movie, right? He is pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed. What is his belief about the use of the weapon he's developed? And he has a million different defenses for it. I'm a theorist. I'm not the guy who gets to decide. He can't even own his own socialist or communist leanings or interest. even. He has to deny any political belief. Because it could get in the way of this all-important work that he believes as he's doing it is the only thing that is going to save them from the Germans, right? The the Nazis are ahead of us. Heisenberg is ahead of us, right? If they don't pull off a miracle and if it's not for anti-Semitism, keeping the best scientists out of Germany, we're going to lose. They're going to have this weapon that we cannot defeat and they're going to win the war, right? He believes He's stealing fire from the gods to save the world. But of course, what ends up happening is that we defeat Germany without the bomb. And then he has to be culpable and complicit as we drop the bomb anyway. And all of this pressure comes to a head as he is announcing the victorious destruction of Nagasaki and Hiroshima, right? And yes, he has ended the war, and he has this incredibly powerful speech, right? Where which is the culmination of all his work and his moment of greatest success. But what the filmmakers are so brilliantly doing is they're dramatizing not what he's saying, but what he's feeling. We're watching him say these incredibly inspiring words, but we're watching him in his mind's eye watch faces burning off of people, stepping into the charred corpse, right? We're watching him feel the blood on his hands, even as he projects these words of victory, right? We're seeing the complicated pieces of this man who has not yet synthesized who he really is. In fact, we as an audience are not going to synthesize all of this until we get to the final line, until we come back around to Albert Einstein, until we hear the question that was asked. Remember when I showed you the math And I was afraid we were going to set up a chain of events that was going to destroy the world. And Einstein says, what of it? And Oppenheimer says in the last line of the movie, I think we did. And what follows is a series of images, right, that are propelled maybe from Oppenheimer's visions or fears or maybe from where our world could potentially go of complete nuclear annihilation, right? A threat that we are still dealing with today that we have seen exacerbated during the Ukraine war, right? That in fact, by absolving himself of the opinion in search of a theoretical and and war victory, right, In in, in saying, I don't get to choose, in ignoring his wife's constant telling him, why don't you fight by trusting the powers that be to do the right thing that he may in fact have set off a chain reaction that's going to destroy the world, right? Just not with fire, but with ice to kind of play around with a Robert Frost quote, that it's going to be the ramifications of the Cold War, which we're still seeing now and nuclear proliferation that just may destroy the world, not the atmosphere igniting. This is what Oppenheimer builds to. But if that event actually happened historically in order, right, if we actually saw that in the middle of the movie, we would lose all of that it would feel like, well, where where do we go from here, right? We wouldn't feel the culmination, the meaning wouldn't land. And this is why Oppenheimer has this crazy convoluted structure, right? This is why it has the frames. This is why we are following these flashbacks and flash-forwards of the hearings um, that happened after the Trinity Project and the second frame of the meeting with Einstein that happened— after the Trinity Project, but before the hearings. That's why we are seeing the events come out of order so that we can culminate with the realization at the same time Oppenheimer culminates with the realization, right? Um, The structure grows out of the theme. In fact, why are we even watching Strauss? Why are we watching his confirmation hearing? Why are we watching what he did to Oppenheimer? We're watching it because we're watching how the selfishness and the self-serving political goals and the petty idealistic differences and the hurt egos of people have put us in a situation where we have lost control of potentially the most deadly weapon in the world. So both movies Both Barbie and Oppenheimer, they're about characters who don't totally know themselves, coming to a deeper realization of who they are and what they have done. The theme of your movie is always going to be contained in the journey from first image to last image. And of course, this is true in Barbie as well, right? Um, In Barbie, we're going to watch Barbie and Ken go out into the real world where they both discover patriarchy. Barbie discovers patriarchy and it devastates her. And Ken discovers patriarchy and he's like, this is awesome, right? Because in this world, it's Ken who's been objectified his whole life, who's had no meaning outside of women, who's had no role. So Ken goes back to Barbie land and turns it into Ken land. He brings patriarchy to the Ken's. And you can see what brilliant social commentary this is, how this is walking such a really complicated line around the question of what happens when people are oppressed, right? And the ways that we overcompensate and the ways that even the oppressed can other their oppressor and take on the worst qualities of the people who have oppressed them, right? That we've seen throughout history, right? You can actually see what this goofy, silly primary color movie is doing and how it's meeting the audience where they are and saying, hey, this is a freaking complicated issue. Meanwhile, we're going to meet the America Ferreira character, Gloria and her daughter, Sasha, and... They're gonna go on a mother-daughter journey. In fact, they're gonna hijack the structure a little bit, right? Our point of view is gonna shift a little bit away from Barbie and onto Gloria. And we're gonna watch mother and daughter come back together, but we're really gonna watch Gloria build to this incredible monologue about what it means to be a woman right? And how women are straining towards this impossible ideal. Just like in Ken World, we're seeing men strain towards this impossible ideal, right? Just as we're seeing the Barbies get brainwashed back in Kenland. right? We're watching the brainwashing that's happening on so many different levels that's keeping us from being able to actually be human. And here's that whole monologue. I'm going to read this whole monologue to you because it's so freaking brilliant. It's literally impossible to be a woman. You are so beautiful and so smart and it kills me that you don't think you're good enough. Like we always have to be extraordinary, but somehow we're always doing it wrong. We have to be thin, but not too thin. And you can never say you want to be thin. You have to say you want to be healthy, but you also have to be thin. You have to have money, but you can't ask for money because that's crass. You have to be a boss but you can't be mean. You have to lead, but you can't squash other people's ideas. You're supposed to love being a mother, but don't talk about your kids all the damn time. You have to be a career woman, but also always be looking out for other people. You have to answer for men's bad behavior, which is insane, but if you point that out, you're accused of complaining. You're supposed to stay pretty for men, but not so pretty that you tempt them too much or that you threaten other women because you're supposed to be part of the sisterhood. But always stand out and always be grateful, but never forget that the system is rigged. So find a way to acknowledge that, but also always be grateful. You have to never get old, never be rude, never show off, never be selfish, never fall down, never fail, never show fear, never get out of line. It's too hard. It's too contradictory. And nobody gives you a medal or says thank you. And it turns out, in fact, that not only are you doing everything wrong, but also everything is your fault. I'm just so tired of watching myself and every single other woman tie herself into knots so that people will like us. And if all that is also true for a doll just representing women, then I don't even know. Now, if you've read literally any screenwriting book, you know you're not supposed to write monologues. But this monologue works. This monologue works because it is central to the theme. If even the ideal doll can't be a woman in our society, right? Even a woman with all the ideal attributes cannot be a woman, cannot live up to the ideal of being a woman, then what is a normal woman supposed to do? If even in Kenland, even in a world of total patriarchy, Ken is left empty, then what is a Ken supposed to do? And what we're going to watch on the other side of that is Ken and Barbie reach a different kind of understanding. And we're actually going to watch Barbie land change. And then on the other side of that, we're going to watch Margot Robbie, Barbie, decide to become a real girl. And yes, maybe this is just a Pinocchio story, but it's also something else, right? It's actually structurally what the theme of Barbie is actually about, right? It's actually structurally about what does it mean to stop being an ideal and start being a woman. In fact, all of Barbie, just like Oppenheimer, culminates with its last image of destruction Barbie is also going to culminate with its last image, of Barbie, and a little a last little joke. It looks like she's there for a job interview, having finally become a real woman, and it turns out she's there to see her gynecologist for the first time, which is a gag, of course, because she doesn't have genitals. Maybe she does. Maybe she's transformed into a woman with genitals. We don't, we we will never know. Um, but it's a joke. But it's also not a joke. It's about the character stepping into the complicated reality of being a woman and making sense of that. The dream, the wish that Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach have for their audience, right? Whether you're Barbie or a Ken or someone in between. The wish for their audience to stop trying to be an ideal and start getting real you can see that both of these movies are built around their themes. If you're writing Oppenheimer and you're not cursive, you're going to say, why so complicated? Why so many frames? Why so many flashbacks? I mean, you heard my episode on flashbacks, right? Flashbacks are dangerous, right? Why all these flashbacks? Hold on, you're not supposed to do monologues. Well, just like Barbie does monologues, we have long monologues from Strauss. But thematically, the reason you go with that monologue and you figure out a way to make it work is because it elucidates for the audience the complexity of who Oppenheimer is. The complexity of making sense of any of this and the forces of ego that have put us in this situation. The the mess that happens, the chain reactions that happens out of our control when we step out of the theoretical and into the real. Right? That there are factors involved that are not rational, that are not theoretical, that are messy human factors that may lead to the destruction of the entire world. This is what we have to learn from both of these movies. So, as you think about Barbenheimer as a screenwriter, this is what I want you to think about. Your adaptation is about what you want to say. Whether you're adapting a draft of your own script, a dream, a true story, a novel, a doll, a board game, a other piece of, another piece of IP, a short story, a couple lines of dialogue, an image, a question you can't get out of your head. Your adaptation is about what you want to say. It's about what you want to say on the thematic idea and what you want to say on the hook idea. And all of the rules of screenwriting, even the ideas that you hear in this podcast, all of the rules of screenwriting are only there to support your theme and your hook. That all of your choices are not about conforming to some kind of bullshit formula that somebody's told you is the way you write a screenplay. That all of your choices are about what do I want to build? What do I want to say? What effect do I want to have in the universe? So if you want to learn more about this, come study with me. You can check out my classes at writeyourscreenplay.com. We do online classes, one-on-one mentorship, master classes, and much more. So check it out. Come study with us. And thanks for listening.